Uh, Let me simply remind you uh, that it is our task as Christians to keep our eyes fixed, fixed firmly on Jesus. Keep your eyes fixed on Jesus. Uh, It's such a helpful thing to be reminded of, such a central and crucial thing to be reminded of. If you're, for example, burdened by guilt, look to Jesus. He forgives you for your sins. Uh, If you are trapped by uh, despair or gloom, look to Jesus. He rose from the dead. So you can rise out of your gloom and despair. Uh, If you're doing well, look to Jesus. Don't you dare forget him just because things are going good for you right now. He might, while things are going well, ask you to give something up and you can't afford to miss that opportunity. Uh, If you need help, well, you know who to cry to. Look to Jesus. If you've run dry and you've got nothing left, look to Jesus. He lifts up the weary, he feeds the hungry, And he puts the wind in your wings. It is our task to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus. And we all need a course correction sometimes. Sometimes we drift so far away from Jesus that we drive ourselves into a dead end and have to turn sharply around on our heels to get back on track. Uh, But uh, even on a a more micro level, we still need course correction. Sometimes we're travelling straight enough doing okay but we still need a hand on the wheel and our eyes on the prize to keep things steady otherwise we drift off and the bible has a word for keeping your eyes fixed on jesus uh, with all the course corrections that are required for sinful weak people along the way and the word for keeping your eyes fixed on jesus in a word is to repent Uh, Repentance means so much more than feeling sorry or admitting guilt. It means staying on course. It means to entirely calibrate your priorities around Jesus' priorities uh, and sometimes recalibrate your priorities uh, where they've drifted off course. Uh, Repentance means dismantling the life that you have built or would build according to your own tastes, and rebuilding your life or having it rebuilt according to Jesus Christ's blueprint. Uh, Repentance, or to repent, it's possibly the best single doing word to sum up the daily demands of the Christian life. Let's put it to the test. Let's put repentance to the test, as I've just defined it, against some of the other candidates. Because there's other great words out there. There's obedience, uh, or faith, or love, or discipleship. And maybe you can think of some others, and these are all great words. So obedience, for example, means to listen to God's voice and obey his commands, following Jesus' example. And repentance means to do all this, the same thing, exactly that, listen to God's voice, obey his commands, but to do this as a weak, forgetful, sinful person and repeatedly resolve to do it again and return when you stray. So I would say repentance means obey and more. Faith or belief, 
or trust. Three words that uh, get mixed up in the Bible. Mixed up as in uh, legitimately mixed up because they're, they're the same word just translated in, into different English words. But faith or belief means believing God so that you arrange your expectations around his promises. You arrange your actions around his demands. And repentance means the same. But it means doing this again as a weak, forgetful, sinful person and returning when you need to, to God's promises and God's demands because we stray. Love, well, that's, that's right up there, isn't there? Jesus uh, summed up the two uh, most central commands in Scripture as love God and love your neighbour. So to love means give God all your heart, soul, mind and strength and treat others as, as you would have them treat you. And to repent really does mean to do that Uh, But it means reordering your loves around his and having your loves calibrated by his so that uh, who and what and how God loves is who and what and how you love. Not just loving what comes easy and who you might get something out of, uh, but loving how God uh, uh, demands us. Uh, And discipleship, it's another good word. It means following Jesus' example, specifically in love, obedience and sacrifice and all these things up here. But repentance, as I've defined, it means that too. Uh, And uh, along with all the course corrections required on the way. Now, let me say this. Uh, There is a chance that I'm over-egging the pudding here. Okay, there is a chance that I'm making it all about repentance just because to repent is the word that appears in today's passage. And so if I make repentance really big, maybe even bigger than it really is, then maybe you'll listen and feel like it's important. Maybe I'm doing all this just to get your attention or just because you know, it's the thing in front of me now and so I feel like maybe it must be uh, the most important thing now. There's a chance uh, that next week the biggest, only most important thing will be something completely different because that's what's in front of us that week. There's a chance that I've stretched the definition of the word repentance so thin that the word risks meaning everything and nothing at all in particular. But hand on heart, I don't think I'm doing that. Uh, I'm, I'm trying to steer away from that. Uh, at the end of the day, you can agree or disagree with me about the right use of the word repentance and, and how broadly it can be defined, but please don't miss the opportunity to repent, to turn to Christ and keep your eyes fixed on him. And let's have scripture define uh, and expand, uh, if need be, our view of what repentance is. So let's look at today's passage. Uh, it's about the ministry of John the Baptist, which is all about repentance, Uh, And then the second thing, uh, part of what we read, was about the baptism of Jesus himself. And we broke it up into uh, reading it in two sections, which encapsulate what I've been trying to describe about repentance. Verses 1 to 10 are about turning from sin. This is repentance, but it's not all there is. Repentance is also about turning to him, turning to Jesus. It is both and, turning from and turning to So first of all, in verses 1 to 10, uh, turn from sin. Uh, You could be forgiven from his nickname uh, um, for believing that John the Baptist's whole shtick is baptism. That's that's his bag, that's his thing. Uh, But his real deal isn't baptism, it's repentance. Baptism is one aspect of repentance. And so first of all, John rocks up like an Old Testament prophet. He's a head-turner. See how his appearance is described. It says, 
that he wore a garment of camel's hair with a belt of leather about his waist. Now, in 2 Kings chapter 1, someone else is described in exactly this same way, just leaving out the word camel. He wore a garment of hair with a belt of leather around his waist. Uh, And that was Elijah. Uh, Elijah was hundreds of years before John the Baptist. Elijah was a prophet. He was perhaps the greatest prophet, one of the best known prophets. His deeds really were, uh, you know, you sort of, you go from Moses in terms of, you know, the miracles that were witnessed uh, around his lifetime and between him and Jesus, there's kind of Elijah is is the next big one. Uh, There's other events obviously in there, but Elijah is one of the big ones. Uh, and, uh, and, and Elijah operated in the time of King Ahab, uh, who was uh, one of the wicked kings of Israel. And Elijah's job, without necessarily using the word repent, uh, his job, his whole ministry was trying to turn people away from sin to the Lord their God. And he did it by demonstrating a bunch of powerful things uh, with God's help. And then John the Baptist arrives and he even dresses like the guy. Uh, and, and he's operating in a very similar scenario where he's trying to say to people, hey guys, it is time to wake up, uh, the situation is desperate, the kingdom of heaven is at hand, so repent. Because the kingdom of heaven being at hand uh, means, among other things, judgment. It means if, if, if you're not ready, then you're in trouble. Uh, the, the comparison is uh, between John uh, and Elijah is sort of extended a little bit. It's not the same, but the other thing we hear about John is that uh, he, his food was locusts and honey. Uh, he scavenged from the fields. But basically, God, uh, he, God sustained him just on the things that he could find. Uh, and Elijah had a, had a similar existence. The Bible talks about Elijah being fed by ravens at times and by uh, poor widows at other times. And he wasn't a guy with wealth, but a guy who uh, God fed just with, uh, with, with faith and what was around him. So in this first section on repentance, which is turning from sin, uh, we, can, we can get three aspects of what repentance is in here. Uh, there is baptism... Uh, there is confession, and there is the bearing of fruit. So verse 6, like he's called John the Baptist, he came baptising, and in verse 6 it says, uh, after Jerusalem and Judea and all the region uh, had gone out to him, it says they were baptised by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now baptism is another one of those uh, words uh, which which is a very religious sounding word, uh, but it's really, uh, it, it, there's another way of defining it which doesn't sound so religious, and I would say bath. Um, so often people say, uh, technically speaking, the word baptism means to immerse, uh, but that's, that's kind of right and not quite right as well. So the Bible, um, so for example, uh, I remember as a child uh, knowing that there were two ways to wash yourself at the end of a day. You could have a bath or you could have a shower. And my grandparents, maybe this is an old person thing, had a habit of calling both of those things baths. Is anyone else familiar with that? As a kid, that seems very strange that, you know, one's a bath and one's a shower. You can't call a shower a bath. But it's, but it's serving the same function. It's a cleaning exercise. And baptism, while it does mean, you know, to dunk or to, or to um, 
uh, have something covered with water. Um, it also get u- gets used in the Bible of times when things weren't totally immersed in water and things were splashed with water to clean them. Uh, you can imagine if you were uh, washing yourself uh, in a stream, for example, kind of like a baptism scenario, if you were just washing yourself, you may, uh, in the course of washing yourself, dunk your head under the water uh, to wash yourself completely or you may wade into the water and splash bits of water all over you depending on what your hair care routine is up to at that time. And so baptism really does, it can mean all of this. So I'm, I'm very cool and comfortable with people who uh, choose to do baptism as a full immersion experience. That's a totally valid, reasonable way to understand uh, what baptism is in the Bible. Uh, for me and for people in the Presbyterian Church, we understand baptism, the essential element isn't the immersion, the essential element is the symbolism of water and washing. And so we're happy, uh, and we've done it in this church, we've sometimes baptised people fully by immersion and sometimes uh, with sprinkling, which is the way we tend to do babies, but uh, older people as well, uh, if they prefer. But the idea is, the essential element of this, of baptism, uh, isn't, uh, it, it is, is the washing, it's the water. Uh, and so... Um, and, and so, the, and this is a, an element, this is related to repentance, because repentance is, in part, sorrow for sin. It is, in part, an admission of guilt. It is, in part, a sense that I am not enough, that I've soiled myself with my life, uh, that I've uh, made myself unclean in some fashion. And so, baptism is a way of saying... I need to be washed. Uh, and, uh, and it's a way that, um, uh, that is given us in Scripture. Now, uh, the baptism of John that he's doing uh, is not exactly the same uh, or even theologically the same as what we do in church today uh, because uh, his was a baptism purely of repentance uh, and, uh, and we understand now baptism uh, under Christ to mean something like uh, an expression of faith that I am washed, that Christ will wash and has washed me completely, fundamentally, once for all. Uh, and, uh, and, and so baptism does sort of take on, it sort of grows in meaning from John to Jesus. It doesn't change completely, but it grows in meaning and significance. But repentance is, okay, it's baptism, But at the essence of this, there is this understanding that I'm a person who needs washing. As I am, I'm unclean, I'm not presentable, I'm not enough, and I need to be made clean. And there's a symbolic expression of something that is true uh, in your heart and in your need. It says in verse 6, when it talks about baptism, it says that they were confessing. Uh, Verse 6, they were baptised by him in the River Jordan, confessing their sins. There is a chance that by putting those two things together, being baptised, confessing their sins, that actually this is one and the same thing. And you can see how they're related, uh, that merely by the act of being baptised, you're admitting some sort of inadequacy and guilt. Uh, But I strongly suspect from here that that there was uh, other more verbal uh, out loud, literal confession of sin going on as well. You can piece this together from other, um, uh, from other passages in the other Gospels that talk about other people coming to John the Baptist with their sins, soldiers and others saying, what must we do? Uh, and so it is confession of sin. It's verbalising sometimes uh, the things that we've done wrong, certainly in prayer, uh, 
but even to one another. Uh, As people who need to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus and who have been told and taught by Christ that, uh, that our sins are forgiven, we are able to confess sins without fear. Uh, without fear of judgment, but with the expectation of forgiveness and salvation. Uh, We don't need to be ashamed when we talk about our weaknesses and our failures to one another because we know that although each of our weaknesses and failures may not match exactly with one another, we've all got them and we're all in the same boat. It's certainly a good practice uh, to name your sin in prayer. To pause and not just say, yes, God, I'm sinful, I guess, I must have been. Uh, But to bring to mind the things that you have done or the things you know you should have done and to ask him to wash you and forgive you for them. But remember, repentance is more than turning from something and it is more than just sorrow for sin. It is also proactively and productively the life of faith. And so, in verse 8, John talks about baptism, uh, as, uh, talks about repentance as being a thing that bears fruit, that has a certain shape. And it's not just a sad, sorry shape of mourning and grief for sin, but it's productive and proactive. So, uh, the scenario is, is that the Pharisees and the Sadducees, so some of the key religious leaders of the day, have come out uh, for the baptism. Perhaps some of them were even being baptised, but more likely, I think, uh, from the text, they were coming out to spy. You know, they were religious leaders after all, and their sheep are going out to see this guy be baptised, and they want to check up and see what's going on out here. And so they go, and John says, You brood of vipers... Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? And then in verse 8, he says, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And so repentance isn't just a sorry thing. It's not just a washing thing. It is a fruitful thing. Be repentant. Be obedient. Follow, well, at this stage, they weren't following Christ per se, but follow God's commands. Because the reality is that uh, these religious leaders, they wore the right clothes and they had the right name, uh, but their life, particularly in secret, uh, was anything but clean. He also warns them against being presumptuous. Don't presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father, because God is able to raise from these stones children for Abraham. There is a risk of thinking, you know, of choosing something, some arbitrary thing to say, well, I guess I'm all right. So you could say, well, my, an arbitrary thing would be, I'm not as bad as him, so I guess I'm all right. Yeah. Or uh, my parents are Christian, so I guess I'm all right. Or I was uh, christened as a baby, so I guess I should be all right. Or God's about love, isn't he? I hope, I think, so I guess I'm all right. These are arbitrary Things. These are things that we design and choose for our own convenience, uh, but not what God instructs us. And so these guys who wore the right clothes, had the right name, had all uh, the power and privilege, they were really presuming on the wrong things. They were resting on the wrong things. They weren't bearing fruit. They weren't obeying in keeping with a life of repentance uh, the, the true commands with their heart uh, that God had given them. So repent, turn 
from sin. And also turn to him. Uh, At home at the moment, we're in the process of teaching our girls to ride a bike. Uh, And one thing I've been able to observe uh, just over the last week is how uh, you tend to follow wherever your eyes go. Uh, And so, you know, if you've been riding for a little while, you learn to counter that when you look over your shoulder, but kids don't have that built into them yet. Uh, Training wheels have encouraged complacency. So kids can sit and pedal while they look around wherever they like, veering this way and that, but never really in danger of coming off and so not really learning the skills. Take the training wheels off, as I did this week, and the eyes go down at the feet and the ground and guess where the inertia then takes you? Uh, Into the dirt with your eyes. Or if you're meant to be riding on a path and you look at the tree over there or the dog that's barking over here, you follow where your eyes go. It's not enough to say turn from sin. It's not enough uh, to, uh, to know what you're meant to not be looking at. You need to have something or somewhere to turn to. A goal or a prize to fix your eyes on so you know where you're headed. Otherwise you can just careen all over the joint. And it's not hard to see that analogy spreading out into real life, actually, uh, because it feels very much like people in this age, and I mean people of every age, not just the young folk, but I, I think we're seeing this in every generation, as people are increasingly abandoning the principles that have been passed down to them through either scripture or the generations before them, people of every age are finding themselves totally confused about how to navigate life. If you have no foundation beneath you, you have no strength uh, to spring from or safe landing place when you fall. If you have no goal or standard before you, you have no direction. If you have no principles or truth apart from your own private principles and truth, you're spinning your wheels. And so John moves from saying, turn away from sin to fix your eyes on him. In verse 11, he says that he who is coming after me is mightier than I. His sandals I'm not worthy to carry. People have come to John from all over because he has something to say. But John is no leader. He doesn't even uh, see himself worthy of being a servant, which ironically is the best kind of leader. He couldn't even bring himself to touch Jesus' feet. Not because he's repulsed by Jesus' feet, but because even Jesus' feet or sandals are too good for him to come near. Which sets up a beautiful chain, doesn't it? Because you might remember the story where right at the end of Jesus' life and ministry, he dresses himself as a servant and washes the feet of his disciples, even while they object. And he says at the end that all his disciples should do likewise. Uh, My disciples are people who should be washing feet, It helps us to make sense of uh, later on where it says in the book of Ephesians that we should all submit to one another out of reverence to Christ. It seems like uh, a chain that sort of just keeps, is going to keep doubling back on itself and surely there's got to be somewhere, someone at the top. Well, that person at the top is Jesus, but even he is one who submits himself to wash uh, and, and to be beneath and to serve others. What a beautiful chain where the one whose feet we're not worthy to approach would lower himself to wash ours and make us clean. But John talks about uh, Jesus not only as superior in strength and might, 
but as an even greater baptizer than himself. In verse 11, he says, uh, John says that uh, I baptize with water, but Jesus, or this one to come, because he doesn't name him yet, this one to come who is greater and mightier than I, he will baptize not with water, but with the Holy Spirit and fire. I don't know how long many of you been, have been in Emerald, uh, but Emerald floods every hundred years or three years or so. Uh, we tend to think of water as a cleansing agent, but we all know it's, it's got occasionally destructive properties. Well, fire is similar, but, uh, but it's kind of the other way around, isn't it? Fire we think of as a destructive agent, but in extreme cases it has powerful cleansing properties, like when purifying precious metals, for example. So you drop a body, a human body, in water and it will come out cleaner than it went in. Drop a body in flames and it won't come out at all. Except, there is one story in the Old Testament in Daniel chapter 3. Three friends, maybe you know the story, Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego, they've been commanded by uh, the king of Babylon to bow down uh, to an idol that he's made on threat of being thrown into the fiery furnace. Uh, And the fiery furnace is so hot that when these three men don't bow down to the idol and do get thrown into it, it is so hot that it destroys and kills even the servants that threw them into the fire. But then the king looks in the flames and he sees the men walking around unharmed. And then he calls out to them and they emerge from the flames and their clothes aren't even singed and their hair doesn't even smell like smoke. Which is like a really extreme way of saying these guys were really not touched at all. So not touched. There's not even a whiff of the fire on them. And I reckon that that is a sideways hint in the Old Testament of the Holy Spirit's flaming baptism that having been found pure, at least in this scenario, those three men were found pure and unstained and they were unharmed by the flames. But imagine being washed by fire if you're impure or if you're merely chaff, like in verse 12, the stuff that will just flame up and disappear. The flames will quickly destroy. And so the Holy Spirit's fire-filled baptism is one that, uh, is one that uh, can both be dreaded and looked forward to depending on where you stand before him. He will either purify and invigorate you or he will destroy you depending how you're found. So repent, please repent. It says in verse 13 that Jesus came to John to be baptised by him. Uh, and John immediately recognises Jesus at this point as, as the person that he's been speaking about because uh, he's been saying, the one who is coming, the one whose sandals I'm not worthy to carry, uh, and then Jesus comes and, and he knows who he is. And then Jesus asks to be baptised himself and John's appalled that Jesus would want to be baptised by him and not the other way around, but Jesus insists and John goes along with it. But still today, I think a lot of people are left confused about the meaning of it. Uh, why was Jesus baptised? The question goes something like this. If John's baptism is a baptism of repentance, why would Jesus be baptised if he's got nothing to repent of? 
particularly if repentance does have built into it this connotation of needing to turn away from sin. Uh, One answer that some people have put forward is that Jesus does have stuff to repent of, that Jesus isn't as pure as we've been taught. Uh, You know, he's 30 years old, after all, by this stage. Maybe he did have a wild youth of some sort. And it's a reasonably logically tight case, just on here, that if there's a baptism of repentance and Jesus is baptised, then he must have something to repent of. Therefore, Jesus is repenting. If true, it would ruin the doctrine of Christ's perfection. And if true, it would ruin Jesus' ability to substitute his own perfect life for our stained life, because he wasn't perfect at all. Unless you could say that he was made clean by his baptism, and that made him perfect, but then that only points us to baptism as the thing that cleans us, not to Jesus. So a lot of important stuff gets wrecked if Jesus isn't perfect. But just because there's a lot at stake doesn't make it wrong, but it is wrong. Uh, Let's look at the text. Jesus insists that he must be baptised because... What verse? Verse 13? 14. Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfil all righteousness. That's why Jesus insists, because it is fitting for righteousness. Well, that could mean that Jesus required baptism to be made righteous or clean, or it could mean something else. Well, let's look at what happens next. In verse 16, when Jesus is baptised and he comes up out of the water, immediately... He comes up from the water and behold, it says in verse 16, the heavens were opened to him and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Now of all the hundreds, maybe thousands, maybe tens of thousands, I don't know, of all the people baptised by John, Only one was approved by God, the Father, and the Holy Spirit. It's almost as if God has been, you know, at John's side or standing above or over him uh, in some way, as, as if God has been cheerfully cleansing every other person who's presented for baptism. Yes, you are clean, you are made clean, I accept you are made clean. And then when he comes to Jesus, he's saying, well, this one's already clean. He doesn't need to be made clean. He is my beloved son. I am pleased with him as he is. So when Jesus insists that he be baptised to fulfil all righteousness, it's not because his own righteousness meter is running low and he needs to top up. It's because his task is to live for us the full human experience. Because about three years from this point, he would present himself for crucifixion as a substitute for humanity to be punished for our sin... And so he needed to live our life on our behalf, fulfilling all righteousness as he went. Jesus didn't live above the law. He submitted to the law just as you and I are asked to. Jesus, although he is God, had no authority to break the law or even to bend it or even to shave away at it bit by bit or even to add anything on top of it. Jesus submitted himself to everything he expects us to submit to and so he even modelled repentance in baptism uh, so that uh, we might 
uh, be baptised as well and live a life of repentance, but know that uh, as we follow Christ in this, he has been found pure and he is pure on our behalf. So we turn from sin and we turn to him, to Christ. I don't know what you think of New Year's resolutions. Uh, I'm, I still feel like I'm enough of an unfinished product that I still have some hope uh, that uh, having a marker each year uh, might be able to produce a little bit of change in me yet. Uh, I think it's, it, it's not unreason- it, it, it's unreasonable to pin too much hopes you know, on, you know, or from today to tomorrow, I'm going to be just a brand new person through willpower and commitment to a list, a checklist. Uh, but maybe it's not an unhelpful marker to put in your calendar and today think, well, the command is to repent. How do I repent? How do I today repent? What is it I need to turn from? What sin do you need to own and confess to Christ? Or maybe to your wife? or maybe to a friend or a pastor, if that's helpful. What do you need to turn from in repentance and leave behind altogether? You may not even succeed, but it's what you're asked to do. So have a crack, repent, leave it behind. Still thinking about what do you need to turn from? What is something that in repentance you could even just do a little less? So I'm not talking uh, about sin. I'm not saying, well, yeah, just tone the sin down a little bit. Really, our command is to abandon sin. But maybe there's unhelpful habits or routines that have been built into your life that you could afford to do a bit less. And I'm not talking about drinking coffee or eating sugar and cake. Uh, So it's not the dietary stuff that I'm talking about. But what could you do, afford to do a bit less of? And I'm thinking of, you know, that mind-numbing stuff that we do in front of televisions or phones or, you know, what sort, of, what sort of material do you read? Could you do a little bit less of this and a little bit more of something more substantial? That's for you to answer. What could you be doing less of or what do you need to uh, turn from? And then have a look at your life as well and, you know, look at the last 12 months if that's a helpful marker for you. What's been missing? What do you need to do more of? And again, I'm not talking about healthy food, fruit, veggies, exercise. You can do all that stuff, that's great. But what's really been missing? What do you need to turn to? Uh, Has reading your Bible been absent from your routine? Has prayer been a thing you've only done on Sunday? Which, by the way, is great and I'm glad you're here if you pray with us on a Sunday. But is it something you could be doing in your own life as well because it's just slipped off the radar? What are the things you must be doing uh, and should be doing uh, in reverence for Christ? Let's pray. God, we repent. Uh, We repent of our sin, turning from it. Uh, We repent uh, of uh, the things that hinder turning away from them and resolving to do them less. Uh, Help us each to do uh, a bit of an inventory, a bit of reflection on the year that's gone uh, so that we can give our lives to you and leave behind the things that have no place in a life that pleases you. God, we uh, also resolve again to turn to Christ. 
we are sorry for uh, the back seat that we put him in uh, and we pray that you'll help him help us to fix our eyes on him uh, following his lead and his example uh, living freely in light of his forgiveness uh, and living in the power of your holy spirit uh, with uh, through whom you baptize us we pray in jesus name amen